the vast majority of our meaningful social interactions are in the real space of being able to be near, have up, down, and sideways, so to speak, but also to be there with you, you know, and see your, the nuances of what's happening and what's happening around you. And uh, this is the very essence of, and the soul of human interaction. So we need that. And of course, that is why cities, one of the reasons cities have been so successful is it engenders that. So going to this question that what we need to keep active and in fact to enhance is social interaction. But how do we do it We're by social distancing? Of course, we've learned how to do it. But we have Zoom and Skype and all the other mechanisms. And they serve a purpose, and, I, and they've done remarkably well. I must say, I'm amazed how well they've done. But they are two-dimensional, they're soulless, they're not four-dimensional, and unless we invent much more sophisticated versions, we're kind of stuck with having to agglomerate together in physical three-dimensional space. through a unique moment in human history. The interlocking crises of a global pandemic, widespread unemployment, social unrest, and climate change show us just how far civilization has traveled along a path leading to collapse. It is more crucial than ever to seek a deeper understanding of the systems that sustain us and the thin layer of life on the surface of our planet. What are the underlying laws that govern how we live together and as individuals how do our economies and cities grow? How are the human and non-human worlds related? And can we solve the problems we've created when we're quarantined from one another? By identifying the basic cardiovascular and nervous systems of human societies, we may one day be able to cure some of the complex diseases of civilization and found a new sustainable mode of existence. Welcome to Complexity the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week's episode is part one of a two-part conversation with Jeffrey West, physicist, distinguished Shannon professor, and former president of the Santa Fe Institute. In it, we set the stage for a deep, difficult examination of the existential threats we're facing by reviewing some key revelations from his book, Scale, The Universal Laws of Growth, Innovation, Sustainability, and the Pace of Life in Organisms, Cities, Economies, and Companies. In next week's episode, we tackle the question of open-ended growth and whether complex systems science offers any insight into the design of a sustainable economy. Note that these episodes were taped before the murder of George Floyd and now seem both strangely out of date and uncannily prophetic. Stay tuned in the weeks to come for conversations more directly touching on race, bias, inequality, polarization, counter-speech, and trauma. And follow us on social media for timely coverage of the science helping guide society toward fairer and saner outcomes. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you value our research and communication efforts, 
please consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give and or consider rating and reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Jeffrey West, it is an honor to have you on Complexity Podcast, finally. <laughs> well, Michael, it's, it's a delight to be here, and I'm delighted we've eventually found a mutually convenient time to make it work. So. Well, so let's focus on this fabulous compression and, and consummation of your work, your book, Scale, The Universal Laws of Life, Growth, and Death in Organisms, Cities, and Computers. But within this book, there are so many different trajectories that we could take. And you've given so many different interviews about this topic already. It's my hope today that we can carve a refreshingly different path through this and, and touch on some things that, that we haven't heard from you before. I guess maybe the place to start is how did you become a scientist? Let's go all the way back. Oh my God. How did I become a scientist? Well, I suppose it's the confluence of many things like everybody else and a lot of serendipitous things that happened. But there are two pieces that were central. One is I had to be good at mathematics, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, that was one thing. So, you know, it was in language I could adapt to without huge difficulties on the one hand. On the other, I was uh, always sort of a curious kid. Uh, most kids are curious, but I was always pondering, uh, you know, the, the meaning of life and what are the stars and, uh, you know, all the kinds of things you do when you're young kid growing up and beginning to become more and more conscious. And I think also what was crucially important was a gradual semi-conscious realization that in answering some of the questions that propped up in my life, when it was a scientific answer, it seemed to have much more um, wealth of fact and knowledge and prediction and understanding behind it than the kind of explanations I was given, uh, which mostly came from either folklore or the Bible, because I had a relatively religious upbringing. And even though I still, in a kind of strange way, I respect those narratives, I recognized them as something different, but they did play this role that they weren't satisfying in the same way that explanations that had some grounding in what we now call science had. And that began more and more to play an important role for me. So when this book picks up, you're working at Los Alamos oh, yeah. in high energy physics, and you're sort of taken by a bug to follow a particular path and apply some of this mathematical rigor beyond the domain that's normally thought of as a physical domain into the life sciences. And, and then this brings you into uh, collaboration with Jim Brown and Brian Enquist. And, and that's, that feels like a good place to start this. Well, I actually, in some ways, already thought about this many years earlier in teaching when I was still at Stanford. And one of the things I actually enjoyed was teaching sort of non-physics majors, physics. I began to appreciate that because it was extremely challenging. And uh, so in so doing, and most of these were pre-meds, <laughs> not all, but most. And, you know, most of them were there just to get the grade and tick the box and so on. But I felt a real challenge to present a course 
that I felt, you know, a cultivated, intelligent human being should really be interested in. You know, that is the kind of the kind of examples I would choose. So um, in so doing, uh, that was the first time I started thinking seriously about applying the principles and techniques of physics to biological problems, because I wanted to choose examples that, quote, were from not just ordinary day life, but in particular, because there were so many pre-meds, that, that something that might be of relevance to them. And so um, I would concoct all kinds of examples about our body, the physiology of our body, and so on, um, and, and the world around us, uh, ecosystems, and so on. Very simple examples to do with some with thermodynamics, some to do with the flow of blood, and so on. And I had already at that time sort of come across the original scaling law of all scaling laws, the scaling law about metabolic rate. And, and we can come and talk about that in a minute. But and it intrigued me that there was such a thing. And I sort of worked it in to the course just to show them that, look, you know, here's an interesting way of thinking about something that you normally think about in the medical world as eating food and digesting it and sending, you know, creating metabolic energy to keep you alive. But how interesting it is that it has this kind of systematic behavior and what might that mean? And, you know, I sort of left it there at that. But, of course, it planted a seed because I always, when I entered physics, from the beginning when I entered physics, I had sort of, because I'd been so impressed by the power of mathematics and the power of rational thinking and the power of, and this was extraordinary, something I had great difficulty with, of choosing the right variables in which to write the equations and therefore solve a problem. Because I'd, I'd always wanted to apply all of that to something beyond the so-called physical world, this sort of planted this seed which propagated through. And although I spent the rest of my career at that time, for the next 25, 30 years, focused on problems exactly the other end of the spectrum, namely the elementary particles, fundamental forces of nature, and eventually dark matter, and string theory, and all these wonderful things, and you know, the origin of the universe, marvelous questions. Despite being enamored and passionate about that, I always felt that there was this other side that was, you know, having these extraordinary techniques at hand and this powerful way of thinking and formulating problems. Surely we can apply that to situations that are outside of the traditional physical regime. So that's what got me going. And that's why I was very open to it when the timing came along, even though the sequence of events was quite serendipitous. So this issue of metabolism, you know, it's, it's funny to have you on at this point now that we've already spoken to Louis Betancourt and Melanie Moses and Chris Kempis yeah, about extensions on your work. Yeah, um, work done to me. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, and you know, I feel like, you know, we've had such rich conversations about scaling already that I'm kind of torn between taking it even further past those or doubling back and doing some remedial work. <laughs> but I think as far as history and tracing the development of these ideas, is, is concerned. 
metabolism feels like a good place to start because metabolism seems like it's what provides the analogical framework that mm. we can use to compare all of these different kinds of things, cities, companies, conventionally understood organisms. And so, yeah, could you talk a little bit more about mm. how we understand metabolism in a general way and then how metabolism fits in with these properties that you identify, you know, space filling and, and terminal units and optimization? Sure. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, this, uh, the focus on metabolism is, you know, when you come from a physics background, is, of course, the most natural, the most central. Of course, it's also central in biology, but it has been displaced, um, of course, uh, by the genome and the focus on both molecular properties in a very reductionistic way and on information exchange, all of which, of course, is powerful and important. But um, in so doing, metabolism and the focus on energy has very much taken a back seat in biology. And uh, that's a shame because nothing happens without energy. And energy is fundamental. And uh, you can't have, at least from my viewpoint, you can't have information exchange. You can't have genes doing what they're doing unless you have energy first. So it's primary. And indeed, I would say the evidence strongly points towards metabolism constraining what you can do with genomic networks and so on. And that's a whole other area. But that is also relates to how it works in cities. That is that metabolism of the city, that is how energy and resources flow through the city, is a huge constraint on what the city and its citizens can accomplish in terms of their social networks. You can't have obviously, information exchange, wealth creation, ideas generated, businesses flourish without energy and resources. So it's primary. And it, of course, can be thought of in two different ways, typically. One is the way it's traditionally thought of, I would say, in biology, and to some extent, I would say, in economics and therefore social systems. And that is, again, in a kind of reductionistic way, in biology, you know, it's a bunch of chemical processes, extraordinary complex chemical processes that are truly remarkable because they take stuff <laughs> and turn it into life. And that's what's going on inside us somehow. It's, it's kind of amazing. But it's sophisticated chemical processes, and that is usually summarized somewhat glibly, that the, the currency of energy is this molecule ATP, which it is, it's the one that is the, the, the cycle that allows you to function. And it happens within cells and in, um, inside what's called respiratory complexes. These chemical reactions take place within cells. And there's maybe, you know, in one of your more active cells, there could be as many as even a million of such little engines doing this chemical processes, processes producing this molecule ATP, which is your sort of currency of energy. So that's kind of, kind of the fundamental viewpoint of it, the reductionistic. But there's another view, uh, which is the more holistic, integrated view, because obviously if there's a million of those inside your cell and you have 100 trillion cells in your body, how you actually function doesn't know anything. You know, you're not at all conscious that any of that is going on, but you use energy all the time. Here I am waving my hands and 
talking passionately about this, you know. And that, of course, it may have its origins in those ATP molecules, but something else obviously is going on to be able to translate that into action. And that's the more top-down holistic view, which I took when I started thinking about metabolism. And because one of the things that you recognize about metabolism, about energy in general, is that if you have a system, a highly complex system, like a human body with 100 trillion cells, you have to supply those with energy in an efficient, roughly democratic fashion. And the way, of course, we do that is that we have evolved to be a bunch of networks that do that. I mean, we, and the one, the most obvious one we're all familiar with is our circulatory system, where we pump blood through our arterial system to take oxygen and other nutrients to the cells, which go through this chemical process to produce energy, but they feed the cells and the cells feed the system and so on. It's a continuous feedback loop. And what I focused on and what I became fascinated by was this other end of the spectrum, macroscopic systemic part of the system, in which the network itself is constraining what metabolism can do. And it turns out that is an extremely fruitful way of looking at the system, because it turns out that gives rise to these extraordinarily systematic scaling laws, because those scaling laws actually reflect the scaling of the network or more generally, of the multiple networks that control your body. And so from that viewpoint, the fact that even though we are evolved creatures, and all creatures evolved by natural selection, and that implies that there is a huge level of historical contingency in you know, who we are, meaning that all kinds of frozen accidents took place. There were all kinds of special environmental niches we were in, all kinds of survival of the fittest kind of phenomena going on. So all these things were going on, this messy, extraordinary, random process, apparently random process, in which case you would think almost nothing systematic would evolve from it. It would all be sort of not exactly arbitrary, but it would have huge variances across different organisms, which is the way we actually see it because we focus on diversity. We do look very different than an elephant, and we do behave somewhat differently than a mouse. Nevertheless, in terms of anything that you can measure about us, we're actually scaled versions of both an elephant and a mouse, which is about anything we can measure, both our physiology and our life history. And this view, this kind of holistic top-down view, is that it's not such a surprise because we're all controlled by the same kinds of networks, and it is the mathematics and physics engendered by those networks that are constraining things to behave in similar ways in a predictable, scaled fashion as you go from one small size to a very large size. And so that provided the template for much of the later work. And I'm sure, I'm, I'm so delighted. I hadn't realized you talked. I knew you interviewed Luis. I didn't realize you'd also done Melanie and Chris. But of course, they all came a little bit later. But uh, they were all, we, I had extremely fruitful collaborations with all of them. Well, to the episode that we did with Chris, we spent a lot of time talking about his work with you on this particular issue, you know, the biophysical constraints yeah. that are lying behind natural selection. Yes. And we talked a lot about the emergence of multicellularity and breakpoints, major evolutionary transitions. Right. 
that get into some of these issues about the pace at which a cell divides up against the pace at which it's capable of copying its genetic material and so on. One of the questions from our audience that seems relevant to this is about cell types. So this is, this is one of those areas where I think your work starts to answer questions about the relationship between metabolism and energy, and then also regulation and informational structure. So Caleb Meredith on Twitter wanted to know, why is it that the number of cells in multicellular organisms scale with an exponent of roughly 0.88 to the number of genes? And just to append to that, his question, it seems like there is an inference that we can draw from that. And, and you touch on this in, in your book about the number of jobs in a city of a given size and mm -hmm. so on. And so what is, what is going on there? Why would the size of a genetic code constrain or determine the number of cell types? Yes. So, well, let's see. This is a, it's a great question, of course, because it relates to something that is part of my present ongoing work although I must say I'm not making huge progress, and that is this very general question, which lies at the heart of many complex systems, especially complex adaptive systems, and that is the interrelationship between the networks of energy, the physical networks, the infrastructure, the physiology, on the one hand, and the informational networks. And this question, of course, relates to it, because cells, you know, when you think of a cell, you think of it as kind of its physicality, and you certainly think of the physicality of genes, but you normally associate them with um, encoding information. And so their currencies are rather different. Cells, you know, are the centers of the fundamental level of metabolism, of creating metabolic energy. But within those cells, of course, are also genomes that carry information and carry the code. So one of the things that I've, I was almost going to say railed against, but that's too strong, I've just talked about, <laughs> is that I think it's very misleading only to think of the genome and genomic networks as independent of metabolism, because necessarily they're intertwined. So I'm going to now generalize the problem, because that's the one I'm most interested in, and that is, if you think of the brain, which is even more extreme than just, uh, you know, in terms of ordinary tissue, because the brain clearly is designed to exchange and process information. And the emphasis on the brain in terms of research and our understanding is almost entirely in terms of its neural networks, both in terms of uh, how information is exchanged, how it's stored, uh, what are the modularities in that network, and so on. However, none of that works, as I said earlier, without the fact that you, uh, you, know, you have an artery that goes out of your heart, goes straight up to your brain to give it all that energy so that it can do that. And those two networks, the neural network and the circulatory system to the brain, are necessarily intertwined and integrated. They're not arbitrarily there. They're carefully tuned to one another. And it is just a side comment to that. You know, when you look at when, they, when people do fMRI studies, or just ordinary MRI studies, they don't measure, of course, the neural aspect of your brain. What they actually are measuring is the physical part of the, the flow of blood, you know, and they're assuming in that that that's a proxy for the neural network. 
And the question is, well, yes, obviously they're intertribal, what is it? But there's very, very little work, if any, on the interface between them. And going to the language of the scaling laws and the question of numbers of cells that, that was raised, the brain is unusual in several respects. First, as an organ within the body, it is almost unique in that it does not scale linearly with the size of the body. So put slightly differently, elephant's brain is, as a proportion of its body mass, much smaller than that of ours, which is much smaller as a proportion than that of a mouse. So you need proportionally less brain the bigger you are. So that's one curious fact about the brain. And you know that, you know, when you see babies, babies have enormous, if you actually look at them, you know, as grown-ups, they have enormous heads relative to their bodies. And indeed, effectively stops growing, but certainly by about five years old, you're done and that's it. And then you sort of sit with this little head on top of this big body. Of course, we don't see it that way, but that's effectively what it is. So the other thing about the brain is that the white matter and the gray matter often scale superlinearly. That is, you have more of it per capita, the bigger you are. It's one of the few places in biology where you get such scaling. Whereas the regular number of cells in the, in the brain or in the body decreases with size as you get bigger, the proportion does. And that is reminiscent of a system which we've also studied and you've heard about, and that is, of course, of cities. Because cities are also a very close integration of, on the one hand, its physicality, the various buildings and roads and all the various networks of supply, both the transport uh, networks, the roads, but the gas lines and electric lines on the one hand, it's, its physicality, with, of course, its information exchange, its neural networks, which we call social networks. That is the exchange of information between people. And in that image, one can think of the city as the stage and the infrastructure that is there to facilitate social interaction, to facilitate, to increase information exchange. So that, you know, when you look at the scaling of a city with size in terms of its infrastructure, the part that you sort of naively think of as the city, that scales like biology sublinearly, meaning the bigger the city, the less infrastructure, whatever it is, you need per capita in a systematic way. However, that facilitates information exchange and you get more of that, more social interactions, therefore more innovation, more wealth creation, more disease, more COVID-19, the bigger the city, because the city is doing what it should be doing. It's increasing interactions, the bigger you are. So if you live in New York, you're going to get, uh, you know, more buzz and more excitement, more activity. Um, you're going to get higher wages. You're going to be in a more innovative environment, but you're going to get more disease and you're liable to get more COVID-19 than you are if you live in little old Santa Fe. Yeah, so for folks that are familiar with your work, you frequently bring up this 15% increase. The dividend comes with you know per capita doubling yeah. of innovation with, with scale in cities, which you mentioned in your book can be interpreted as a 15% savings in the physical infrastructure, the yeah. energy use. It, I think we're getting closer to the heart, if you will, of this issue I wanted to raise with you today, which is that the brain and the heart 
are not scaling in the same way. So that's like part A. And the part B is that the 15% savings doesn't just stay saved. It's fed back into sure. the system. And the way we think about it in companies is, oh, that's 15% more I can spend on increasing my productivity. So the demands for information processing and, and the metabolic demands seem to be uh, tugging at each other. And I'm, this sort of opens up this whole question about the hypothetical cap on city size. You know, you, you talk about why don't we have mammals the size of Godzilla? And it has to do with the networks of distribution and the difficulty of being able to push resources through them. And I remember talking to when we had Brian Arthur on the show, you know, he, he was making a case that we have scaled the economy to a point where the resource allocation needs to move from productivity, like you were talking about earlier about the growth of an individual human, that it moves at some point from productivity to distribution or maintenance costs. And that we're at a point now where the, the economic system is large enough that we may have to start pushing resources through these networks actively through stuff like basic income. That's a sort of a, a <laughs> multidimensional question, but I'm curious, based on the tension between the demands of the power laws governing information processing and the power laws governing metabolic rate, what you think is the cap on the size of a city or on the size of a global economy before it has to go through a kind of a phase transition into a different kind of architecture in order to persist? Well, that's a big question. You know, the whole thing is a big question, <laughs> but I'll dance around it and then try to answer your question. So first, the essential, we didn't quite clarify this, but the essential difference between organisms, biological organisms, and uh, cities, let's take cities, and by implication, economies, is that in biology, the networks, the ones associated with metabolism, associated with distributing energy and resources, are dominated by simplistic idea of efficiency. That is, our circulatory system has evolved such that if we make any change in it, you know, you double the size of the fifth branch of your arterial system, or you halve the size of the eighth branch, whatever, you make any change, your heart will have to work harder. That's sort of the idea. Well, that's averaged across, of course, all organisms, all mammals. Say. And if you do that, that's a fundamental input into the derivation of the equations that give rise to the scaling laws and to the quantitative form of the scaling laws. So that gives rise, that economy of scale, the bigger you are, the less you need, in that case, per cell, per capita, to stay alive, gives rise to two major things. One is it gives rise to the concept of the pace of life decreasing with size. So elephants sort of walk slower. They, feel, they don't actually walk slower, but they look like they walk slower. Their heart certainly beats slower. Their whole metabolism is slower than a mouse, say, all in a systematic way. That's one thing. So the pace of life decreases. The other is that this sublinear behavior, the bigger you are, the less per capita, gives rise to a cessation of growth. When you feed that into the growth equations, that gives rise to the idea that you grow fast at the beginning and then gradually you stop and you reach a stable kind of asymptotic size 
and you live most of your life at that site. So that's sort of the idea. And then you die, by the way. <laughs> that's built into these equations, unfortunately. And that stable configuration is, of course, uh, plays a fundamental role in the generic stability and sustainability of life itself. That there is a stable configuration that the mature organism lives in. Okay, there's exceptions to this and so on, but that's sort of the general general features. Now, contrast that with social behavior, socioeconomic behavior, and cities. There, we of course do have economies of scale in terms of the infrastructure, the buildings and roads and so on. But we have this new thing, which is the dynamics of social networks for which cities have actually evolved. I mean, as I said earlier, cities are the engine that drives, if you like, social networks or facilitate social networks. A great city increases social connectivity. And that social connectivity has a characteristic which is quite different than biological networks because built into it is positive feedback. A talks to B, B talks to C, C talks to D, D talks back to A. There's this conversation goes on and that has positive feedback in it. It produces ideas, produces innovation, almost all of which, even though it's going on all the time with this, are useless and pointless, even probably to the people involved in them, but that's part of it. But what is remarkable is every once in a while, it produces the theory of relativity or quantum mechanics or a Google or a Microsoft or whatever. And that's the wonder of it, but it is the sort of fundamental source of innovation and cities are the engine we have evolved to facilitate that. That positive feedback mechanism gives rise to something quite different than we see in biology. It gives rise to this superlinear scaling. The bigger you are, the more you have per capita, the more social interactions per capita, therefore the greater wealth per capita, the greater ideas, more ideas per capita, the more disease per capita, etc. And that superlinear behavior, if you now feed it into the same growth equations that gave rise to the stability of biological organisms, has a remarkable effect. It gives rise to the open-ended growth of socioeconomic organisms like cities. And so we have a distinct difference, two different categories coming from the same basic mathematics, one giving rise to a kind of highly stable situation, the other giving rise to an open-ended growth situation, which of course is the paradigm under which, especially in the last couple of hundred years, modern society operates. Um, we operate in the paradigm that we need to have open-ended growth to sustain the economy. So that's the structure. And one of the nice things about this work is that it gives a very succinct, well-defined mathematical underpinnings for all that, um, including many, many predictions that, are, that agree with data. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good starting point to ask this question about, are there maximum sizes to these things? You know, can you go on making organisms as big as you like? I mean, can you, can you, go, from, you go from elephants and dinosaurs to blue whales, the biggest organism that has ever existed on the planet? Could you make something 10 or 100 times bigger, so to speak? Could you make? Could something like that evolve? Well, you sort of intimated earlier, the answer is, if you look at all the equations, it turns out 
highly unlikely. Um, you couldn't have a Godzilla because it turns out that the way those scaling laws work, you simply, what happens is the network and try, the whole point of the networks is to supply cells. And as the system grows, the distance between the analog to capillaries, capillaries which feed cells, gets further and further apart so that at some stage, you simply can't give enough energy to the cells and the system can't survive. So whales come pretty near that maximum limit. So I would say it's extremely unlikely that there could be larger organisms. With the one caveat, given the kinds of body designs that have evolved and the kind of chemistry that has evolved. So there are obviously always caveats like that. Now, go to the other side of this mathematics, which is the positive feedback loops giving rise to superlinear behavior, which I say gives rise to open-ended growth. Well, turns out if you look at all that and you just take cities as an example, and you ask the question, could you imagine uh, Tokyo, which is 35 million people, being 70 or 100 million people? Or could you imagine Los Angeles, which is whatever it is, 10, 12 million people, being 50 million people? Well, let's take Los Angeles. Well, there's nothing in the equations that stops it. It just could go on just adding on and adding on. So that's the first sort of initial superficial reaction. But then you realize something that is not in the equations, actually, and that is, it could be put in, in principle, and that is Los Angeles already has a problem supplying all of its cells, so to speak. It has already, what is it, 12-lane freeways or whatever it is, some, something humongous, and they're clogged. So if you are to supply all of the cells, meaning all of the individual buildings, all the individual people in one unified network, this is very important, in one, all connected to the same network, which we call Los Angeles, then if you kept adding and adding and adding, the only way to do it, of course, is to build freeways that are not 12 lanes, but are 25 lanes, and to have rail lines that are not four rail lines, but a 10 rail line, or to completely change the whole transport system in some magical way, even with electric cars, I'm not sure we could do it, but- Boring tunnels underground. Tunnels on, you know, so, so that's the point. If you change, that's why I put the caveat about organisms. If you, in, in some science fiction world, which may or may not be science fiction, you might be able to invent different physicalities, different solutions in terms of not necessarily the transport of people, but the communication between people. Because the point of a city is, and the definition in this way of thinking of a city, is people in the city have to be connected to the same network. So one of the ways you could define it, just to make that a little clearer, is you would have to define, you would be part of a city if you interact with someone else in that city, say at least once a week. It could be someone, it could be anything. You go to a store once a week. You have to interact, interact socioeconomically once a day, once a week. You can define the rate, but you have to have a cutoff. So by the way, that's, it's an interesting definition because you could imagine 
that you live in Los Angeles and commute to Santa Fe uh, once a week, and uh, you would interact once a week with people in Santa Fe and Los Angeles, and there's no reason you couldn't be citizens of both. Perfectly fine. But anyway, the point is what you could imagine. So one of the things you could imagine is you completely redesign the city in some way, or you make some extraordinary new inventions in terms of communication and transportation, or you continue to build the city, and what happens, and which we already see happening, is the city balkanizes, it breaks up. That is, even though it is physically contiguous, just goes on and on and on, it's actually not one city, it's two cities, or three cities, four cities, each one which is effectively semi-autonomous. And the social networks of one are only very loosely connected to the social networks of the other, even though their infrastructure is continuous. So, you know, of course, we see uh, developing examples of that. So that is linked to uh, when we were talking to Melanie Moses, the ant hive as an adaptation to the constraints on the size of insects. Yes. And this idea that, you know, the social organism is a kind of balkanization of insect processes. Yes. In a sense that, you know, you get, rather than one big thing, you know, you get the equivalent amount of mass, you know, Ricard Soleil would call a liquid brain. Yes, that's right. And so this kind of question begs, in relation to uh, comments that you made uh, later on, I think it's page 406 in the paperback <laughs> version of Scale. <laughs> if, oh, yes, if readers I, I are listening, of course. <laughs> yes, in the paperback version, page 406, you're talking about the longest lived companies. Oh, yes. And how all of these companies are of relatively modest size, operating in highly specialized niche markets, that they look very different from Fortune 500 companies. And so there's this question due to the you know the fragmentation of the social network that we've experienced during this pandemic mm. and you're know, seeing lots of people citing your book on both sides of the argument yes. for the future of mega cities yes. and does this suggest that rather than a sort of megalopolis that we get sort of smaller polycentric coordinated networks of cities I guess is the question, or or how does polycentrism fit into an understanding of of the the way that this is going to to scale? Yes, I, of course, pandemic is extremely interesting in regard to the future of cities because it is an urban phenomenon predominantly, obviously, because that's where most of the people live. And as I said earlier, it spreads faster, and there are many more cases in cities that are larger. So. Cities play a predominant role. And by the way, again, a side comment, cities, of course, are the determinant of the future of the planet anyway. I mean, they're, you know, one of the things that has intrigued me by getting involved in trying to understand cities and why I've been so passionate about it is I believe very strongly that it is the key, the absolute key to global sustainability and the future of the planet. And I'm still disappointed how few people recognize that the city is the key. And not only that, it plays a special role because one of the things that we've learned and seems to be sort of in our DNA is that we are social creatures. And that has been 
hugely enhanced by our discovery or invention of language and our communication skills that, again, leads to these positive feedback mechanisms and the huge benefits that we have got from that, which has given us the kind of quality and standard of life to which many of us are privileged to have. Uh, But it's also, I mean, this is what is so, it's almost diabolical, or maybe you could think of it also as poetic justice, but the very mechanisms of social networks that give rise to our huge success, in material terms anyway, is the very source of our weakness. And that's what we see in COVID-19 and the pandemic, because the same dynamic, indeed the same mathematics that governs the spread of ideas and the growth of innovation and the growth of cities and social systems and economies, that same dynamic is the dynamic that leads to the spread of disease and in particular of the the COVID-19. And we have to come to terms with that, but it's not just COVID-19, it's also the spread of other negative aspects of human behavior, antisocial behavior, of crime, of other disease, of corruption, and so on. So coming to terms with that and understanding that balance between the good, bad, and ugly that are inherent in the dynamic of social networks is crucial. And in terms of the future of the city, I would say that if there are no changes in the way we do business, which is a big question mark, and we can return to that uh, momentarily, and, and we've seen this, if you decrease social connectivity in order to limit antisocial behavior, everything from the transmission of disease to crime, then of course you decrease social entrepreneurships, ideas, and so forth. Now, the thing that has saved us during this pandemic, we all know, is sort of what you and I are doing now. When we could have done this, we may, I don't know if we would have done, we probably wouldn't because it, podcasts are by their very nature through the internet, but we could have done this face-to-face in principle. And I would argue that the vast majority of our meaningful social interactions are in what I call four-dimensional space, namely the real space of being able to be near, have up, down, and sideways, so to speak, but also be able to smell you and touch you and feel you. I mean, metaphorically maybe, but to be there with you, you know, and see your, the nuances of what's happening and what's happening around you. And uh, this is the very essence of, and the soul of human interaction. And so we need that. And of course, that is why cities, one reason cities have been so successful is it engenders that. So going to this question that what we need to keep active and in fact to enhance is social interaction. But how do we do it We're by social distancing? Of course, we've learned how to do it. We, we, we have Zoom and Skype and all the other mechanisms, and they serve a purpose, and, I, and they've done remarkably well. I must say I'm amazed how well they've done. But they are two-dimensional. They're soulless. They're not four-dimensional. And unless we invent, which we may well, invent much more sophisticated versions, we're kind of stuck with having to agglomerate together in physical three-dimensional space and be with one another. 
And uh, there's nothing more satisfying than having uh, an exciting get-together of a group of people on creating new ideas, having discussions, watching a football game together, watching a film together, going to the theater, having sex together, and so on. There's nothing, I mean, this is what life is. And I do, I don't, I, I speak with no expertise, but I feel that's in our DNA. That is who we are. And so it's very hard for me to see that despite, you know, an aversion at the moment by some to urban living because of the pandemic, that when the new metastable configuration evolves in the next year or two, cities won't gradually go back to the same trajectory they were on. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, there may be, there will be changes. I'm not denying there won't, there certainly will be changes. You know, I mean, there'll be some, maybe some very positive changes. There may be limitations on transport, limitations on, you know, I mean, I, these pictures I saw this morning, I think in the New York Times, pictures of cities where, you know, they're closing roads and they bring out, uh, you know, the, the restaurants bring more, more tables out onto the sidewalk and into the road. Fantastic. You know, that, and of course, actually, in some ways, that increases social connect. That's why you're in the city. You want that. So I must say, I don't, you know, after all, it's kind of weird. I don't live in a big city, but I recognize the criticality of having big cities. And as I said earlier, more importantly, really, perhaps more importantly, is that the future of the planet is completely dependent upon the future of our cities. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.